Hi, welcome to the You Don't Know Mojack Show. My name's Ryan. My name's Brent. And we are here today to talk about release SST-004, The Miniman, The Punchline. And we've got a bit of a special guest on this episode, Brent, right? Yeah, I interviewed Mike Watt. My first interview, ever. That's your first interview ever? How, what was it like to interview him? Easy. He does all the talking. Yeah, he's he, de- he definitely has a lot to say, and I mean, it's so interesting to listen to him. Yeah. You know what? I was listening to the punchline. I was thinking, this is, you know, kind of the first full length. We're going to get to Saccharine Trust, Pig and Icons in a couple shows, but punchline's kind of the first release, and it's like a solid, right when you, like a song is starting to hit you, it's over. And it's right into the next one, and it's right into the next one, and then it's over. And then, before you know it, side two is done, and you're just like... What just happened there? It's a really, really cool record. The the intro to Search, that to me, it still kind of gives me goosebumps now and then because it's such a cool intro, great bass. Uh, I know in the interview you talk about the artwork on the album, the painting that, I you know, I'm not much of an art aficionado. I'm just not. But I've actually really always loved the cover of Punchline. Yeah, I like it too. It's a... Uh, Really cool D. Boone drawings, and Watt has a great story about that. George Hurley did the artwork on the back. And in the interview, too, like, Watt will go off on all these tangents, but they're all kind of connected, right? Oh, yeah. So I don't know. I mean, without further ado, maybe we should just get to the interview, and we'll come back at the end and talk about the ballot result. All right, here we go. I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about where the band was at at that time. We were just beginning. Actually, we start recording that in the winter of 80. We start recording that thing before Paranoid Time came out. Is that right? Yeah, I wouldn't be bullshitting you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, some of this stuff is covered in uh, Craig Gabar's book, A Whale of a Town. Yep. You know about that? Yep, I yeah, I do, yeah. I remember him asking me details about it. Now, this is a long time ago, yeah. but that's what I remember. Yeah, the media art. We're going to record. And recording with Spot? Spot was the producer, engineer. We were going to, um, different than Paranoid Time, Greg Ginn was involved with that more. That was all done and mixed and recorded one night. This was a, a couple days. A couple nights, actually, because we didn't record during the daytime those times because it was more expensive. It was cheaper to do things. And what they called downtime. So used ha- uh, used tape. You had to do everything to, to be Kano, you know, record in order, cut down on the money to... Uh, sequence but uh we had put together by that time a set with george hurley because the, the first minuteman drummer had left the band after two gigs georgie got in and learned the songs enough to do paranoid time but in a couple songs extra that didn't make it to the record but we didn't really have enough songs with him to play gigs so we had to hurry up and uh write some and in fact he contributed some lyrics on some that very early ones uh, i think uh uh, for, for, for sure, the first song I know is his, uh, Search, his words. And so Georgie, right away, now we had already played with him in the Reactionaries, so it wasn't the first time we are playing with him. As a Minuteman, yeah, Georgie, uh, right away, got involved with the, uh, not just playing, but uh, help with words. You know, I'd, I'd like to write a lot to the words, so if I only had my words to go with, I'd start uh, coming into, yeah, repeat mode. I reruns, you know, so Georgie helped me. Yeah, Georgie wrote uh, Warfare, Gravity, uh, Search, of course, Boiling, Monuments. So were these songs written prior to the songs on Paranoid Time? 
Oh, no, somewhere. Of course, yeah, you know, there were songs that Georgie didn't know yet. Of course, these ones that he's involved with, they have to be after. But he learned songs like, for example, Joe McCarthy's Ghost, Paranoid Chant, Fascist, Sickle and Hammer, you know, all those ones off Paranoid Time, plus a couple others, like I said, that didn't make it. But then we had to do more so we could do sets, you know, gigs. Right. The records in those days for us was... Uh, you put those out to get people interested to come to see your gigs. Kind of the same thing that happens now. The record seems to be more of the something to tour behind more than ever. Well, it was when we started the Minuteman, we joined the movement and get out of the arena rock shit. And we had a discussion about things, you know, aesthetic wise. We decided to split the whole trip up into two categories. There was gigs and flyers, and everything that wasn't a gig was a flyer because it was so profound on us, you know, this idea of going to clubs. We're 13 in 1970, so our whole teen years is arena rock, 70s music. We didn't know about clubs till the movement. So this had such an impact on us. Yeah, we thought this was what really made big difference. And it actually empowered us to try and write our own songs and use music for expression and instead of just some way of hanging out, you know. Getting to make records, yeah, was incredible, but I mean, never did that before anyway, but I know something we didn't really know about as much. That's why we let Spot and later on Ethan James do all all the board stuff and produ- production. We, ju- we just thought they were like uh, gigs in front of the microphone, kind of. And so there'd be a way, uh, some kind of telephone pole, like uh, as a metaphor for a college radio station or listener-supported radio or yeah. fuck even in you know, like Rodney and uh, K-Rock, whatever. Also... Uh, you know, a small community. These uh, people are really into the record stores and buying records. You know, the gig goers. It was a tiny scene in those days. U.S. and Canadian punk were kind of the same in those. It was different than England. England was much more popular. Uh, both us and you, you guys. We had small scenes. Yeah. So you your records for, for for that kind of scene, not like pandering or anything, but people checked it out. There was enough bands, or not too many bands, but. Um, People knew almost everybody, and you knew it mainly because of the fanzines. So the fanzines would write about this, they'd be in the store, so it was that kind of thing. I don't know what's exactly like now, except for what you're probably thinking is, yeah, for a hundred years, companies could make a lot of money putting music on a piece of media and selling it. For all that other 99.99% of the time, uh, music people have had to support themselves by playing for people. Well, you're right that way. I, I agree with It's kind of come back to that. You know, uh, yeah. and you got to remember, too, in those days, things changed very fast. You know, nowadays things change very slow. You know what I mean? I can rap with a punk rocker in his teens, even, and there isn't a lot of distance between us, except maybe some of my experiences. But it's much different. You know, I'm going to be 60 in December. Like in my days, me and D. Boone, Georgie, boys, Young punk rockers talking to sixty-year-old guys—it didn't really happen that much. Yeah, things change, <laughs> and I don't think that's a bad thing. Actually, this whole thing about rock and roll and generations—and that was just some marketing angle. You know, it was really ridiculous anyway. Uh, so, uh, but this thing about—I also think people got more open-minded. Oh yeah, and people were so uptight about the movement in those days. Uh, not even the Square Johnson, uh, other rock and rollers. Raleigh hated it more than the square jumps. It was fucked up. On the other hand, something positive out of this was you didn't take it for granted. 
and you, 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 you know, Jammy Connor was not just empty slogan. I mean, it was for real. And since you know, you don't have to worry really about being merch. Let the freak flag fly. So I think, in a way, that situation helped us. And so uh, we're looking at uh, paranoid time coming out of that. Wow, Greg Ginn wants us to make a record for. Okay, now it's time to make kind of a a record, not just a, a statement. Let's make a whole thing, kind of like a piece. Like of a gig, because uh, the way Minutemen did gigs. Actually, I still do this. You know, you play it like one fucking song. Now that I think back, you know how weird it was for me to do them three big operas. Actually, not. I think the Minutemen tradition, even though they, they were little songs, they kind of all fit together. <laughs> you know, so uh, when I hear something like, uh, and you know, I've been doing some of these songs, songs I wrote for these guys in those days. Recently. Uh, yeah, last couple of years, like uh, off this record here, Punchline, Fanatics, Straight Jacket, just to show people in the course of my music journey, you know, the sea change. Uh, and how are those received? Well, <laughs> these people weren't even born yet, so they don't know their <laughs> old songs. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and also, Brad, you got to understand, too, the bizarre, you know, this has nothing to do with music in a way, but the social context it's almost a fucking, you know, deja vu all over again. <laughs> in certain Lyrically, ways. you mean? Maybe. Yeah. Or maybe the whole, I said socially, so. No, but even the music, the urgency, the everything. Now, now, I think in those days, yeah, people didn't share views. I think people looked to music more for about sharing views. Now they use shitter and fake look and shit like this. Uh, even bumper stickers, I noticed on cars, isn't that popular. People use other ways to you know discuss things you did you see this uh, documentary maybe 12 years ago it was called we jammy kano yep yeah well nels klein talks about it with lyrics d boone he just called that thinking out loud he thought the political part of our band was the way he organized the music with him playing real trebly you know obviously got this from the r&b the brothers the way they did that music so the bass and the drums could come up he wanted to shape the band more you know, arena rock was more of a hierarchical thing with the guitar, you know. And when the movement came, it made things more even. And Dee Boone did this even more with the uh, Minuteman. And, uh, you know, of course, I was into it. Georgie was into it. <laughs> and, but you got to hear uh, Nels Klein talk about this, which is pretty hip of Nels. But Nels is sensitive that way. And uh, that's where I think. And I hear that in the music. It's not just the words. The idea of the short songs. That was not our idea, okay? This come from a band from England called Wire. Even though a lot of the bands, up, you know, we were seeing in Hollywood, like Germs, and, they had little songs too, but nothing like Wire. The name Minuteman actually came, you know, like the reactionaries, D. Boone wanted me to name the band, but not really name it, but supply him with a list of names he could choose from. <laughs> Which I was into because, yeah, you know, that's a heavy thing to name a band. So... Sure, I'll come up with, the, you know, whatever, the, the grist, <laughs> a bunch of, you know, chafe, and let go to it, go to work and pick it up. So one of these words, names, was a two-word name, and I was referring to Arena Rock, our Arena Rock experience, you know, where we were part of Bert, big, stupid Nuremberg rallies, and we were the minute man. <laughs> and people says, no, man, I like this name, but let's make it one word, and there's these peckers. They're trying to appropriate patriotic symbols. You know, they write mean letters to Angela Davis and shit. So we'll just dilute whatever they're trying to do by calling ourselves the same thing. Which is so funny 
in a way, ironically, later, 20 years later, these people do that to us that are trying to guard the border with Mexico or stuff. Yeah. Like we had nothing yeah. to do with those clowns, but because they call their, you know, prods the same thing. <laughs> so our own strategy was used on us. <laughs> kind of. I, I don't know if they were purposely doing that, but that, it's funny about humans and their relations that way. So that's where I, I, I see some of the parallels in, in some strange ways. To me, lyrically, considering the age, you said you guys were 20 years old. To me, that no, no, we're 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 22, almost 23. It's still pretty, <laughs> you know, pretty heady stuff yeah, for a 22 yeah, year old. We are okay. How did you guys become politicized? Well, that was a big difference. 70s punk, like we were the young guys. There wasn't really a lot of kids. Right. There was a lot of people from glitter and glam. Again, people don't know this because it lasted only so short of a time, right? And they're not really the ones, the ambassadors. Greg Ginn was, yeah, Black Flag, going to the towns. But the Hollywood scene, maybe you could say this too about New York City and San Francisco. Yeah, they no one really thought about touring. Were you guys touring it by this point? No, we start touring. The Flag taught us about that. I think only the Dills had a van. Screamers went to New York City and did a couple gigs or some San Francisco's. I know the Germs went to the city sometime. Yeah, the, that whole touring thing, we, we got to give credit to Greg Ginn, Chuck Dukowski. I bet DOA whole, was maybe coming your way by that time. Yeah, but those guys, they were their own thing. And those guys... Maybe they had an influence on U.S. bands, definitely on Canadian bands, and I saw them many times. And maybe they had influence on Black Flag because they they were torn way early, and they had a you know kind of a they got together with those guys. And in fact, Biscuit ends up in the band for a little bit. Yep. You know, but I saw them with Randy Rampage. Those guys, yeah. I mean, there was there was who's could do too. You know, they toured on their own. There were some bands out there, but really, Black Flag brought that thing around. And the circuit that Chuck Dukowski, you know, with the phone, his phone book, part of that thing I'm still torn on now. Okay, DOA, Joey Shithead. I mean, I remember he had a couple, well, it was the same song, Something Sucks, you know. So there was Disco Sucks and Regan Sucks and New Wave Sucks. And you could tell with punk rockers, words were about expression. You know, these people wanted to let you know what was on their mind. They wanted to be provocative, you know what I mean? You see service gender. I mean, I never saw anything like that in Arena Rock. A lot of the political stuff is just designed to be provocative. Your lyrics, I think, again, considering your age, I'm just really curious about how you guys got so politicized at, at such a young age. Well, I tell you, I think the politics was actually in the way we put the band together. The lyrics, D. Boone said, was thinking out loud, and I agree with him. We had how many years of civics class at the school? You know, they're always talking about, uh, this is a... Uh, not too many years after the Watergate thing, and uh, we're involved with pretty soon Iran-Contra and all this uh, silly stuff happening. I don't know. I think in a, in a way we were just re resonators. Remember, we're boys in the 60s. This is when people are getting in the streets and, and dealing with uh, anti-war and civil rights and free speech. In a lot of ways, you know, we were uh, reeds. Of course, I, I'm not saying we're robots or automatons, but we were resonating with some kind of feelings. A lot of people your age, would you say? Well, you know things in the 70s, there was a back swing, there was a pushback from the 60s, uh, and which is a, a reason, I think, why the movement came about. Because, well, for one thing, lost a lot of the artistic part lost its humor. You know, it was Steve Martin, Cheech and Chong, and, which was okay, I guess, but there wasn't that biting uh, Lenny Bruce thing, you know? Lost some of that, which is commentary on current events, if that's what you're talking about. Some of, the, some of those things are like that. We are also, you got to understand, uh, that there was uh, people who were not even rock and roll in this movement that were more like artistic people. Uh, Raymond Pettibone 
He teaches me about Emma Goldman, uh, which I never learned about uh, as a younger person, experiencing those other things. But I learned about Dada and Surreal. Yeah, it's a crazy time. And you know, Dee Boone actually is an artist. He knows how to paint. We don't know nothing, anything about these movements, though. Uh, being in a working town and your friends, it's not like they're stupid or, or anything. They're not. They're really intelligent people. George Early, for the example. But you're not, you don't have the access to the resources, you know, to. Actually, this was, was a great thing of the, of the movement, you know. But we were from working families and especially Kano issues, money, prejudice, uh, getting stopped down. Yeah, we're, we're very much involved with that. Our words are totally reacting to that as, as, as 22. I'm not embarrassed by any of those words. When I, when I did these songs again, 35, 37 years later, I was, you know, it was not embarrassing. It was like, oh, here's a young man, you know, not knowing what he's doing. Just flailing. Some of that stuff was. I'd be proud to be writing today. <laughs> totally. Some of it was so econo. You know, I remember this one song I wrote called "Issued" on the, on this album you're talking about. I think it only has two lines. <laughs> I mean, some of this shit was really econo. Fanatics. Debu didn't even play. Just dance. <laughs> you know, it was. I'm not trying to like make anything about talking about your views and your uh, whatever belief systems and concepts of how we should live together and belittled in any way it did seem artistic too in a weird way and especially for us you mentioned that Dee Boone was painting well for example the album cover yeah I was going to ask about that and George did the, the back cover, cover is, it, it's a huge painting okay and then Dee Boone decides he gets a 12 he gets a record 12 inches square right and he puts it in this part where he thinks it's the most interesting so okay I'll cut it here he cut the actual painting? Cut it right out. Yeah, because this motherfucker was like six by eight or something. It was huge. So he found where the red, the yellow, and the blue. And he told me later that each one of us was one of the colors. So that was... Uh, now, I titled the album The Punchline. I wrote a song about... Well, part of it is about General Custer, you know, and it's probably scared to get killed, you know, no matter what the uniform is. I got the idea from, like a lot of my shit, from artwork from Raymond Pettibone. And he had the stand-up comic, but it's a skeleton. And it says, death is the real punchline. Okay. And that's like that, yeah, the punchline. Why, why, why did you go with the decision to use your own artwork and, as opposed to Raymond's again? Well, I used Raymond's artwork to come up with the title. His artwork isn't actually used on the record. You're talking 002, the first one, Paranoid Time? That's got Raymond artwork? Yeah. In fact, he comes up with it for the record. But that wasn't us. Even though I'm friends with him, that was Greg's idea because Greg's his brother. Right. And I think wanted, Greg wanted to bring Raymond in. He was doing a lot of, and and Chuck Tukowski used the corny ass Chinese letters, you know. But the artwork on the first record isn't us at all. Right. Raymond did all the writing on the back in his own hand. Yeah, that's all those guys helping us. Now, like I said, Dee Boone is a painter. Painting just so specifically for the cover. Before we were uh, the movement, when we were just doing Cream songs and Blue Oyster Cult in the bedroom, Dee Boone painted. In fact, he used to sign his name D. Boone. He got it from Eric Bloom in the Blue Oyster called E. Bloom Stud Guitar, you know. Sign his name D. Boone. So the first time he uses it isn't really for music. It's for his paintings. Now, he wasn't really formally trained. I think he took a painting class at Harbor College, a, a junior college here. But mainly, he, you know, as an autodidact, he did it. D. Boone was a sensitive guy. I know he looks big and, and thick and strong, you know, but he actually was a very sensitive guy, especially with his fingers. I'm very good painter and drawer. Okay, but his artwork isn't the only artwork on the record. On the back, Georgie took a clock, busted it up, a little electric clock, and then used spray paint to do these kind of a uh, stencil. And was that a one-off for George, or did he also do art? No, I, I never knew Georgie did art before. Yeah. 
or since. <laughs> but he did it there, and nobody asked him to. Georgie says, I'm telling you, when he, he joined up the, with the band, he came in, you know, not just some kind of mouse to, to do the drumming, man. Georgie was fully engaged. And he's like this all the way up to double nickels. Okay. It's, a, uh, it's an intense time, yeah. You can't really... I mean, he learns the songs for Paranoid Time, but he's, you know, he's just in the band. But from Punchline and to uh, Double Nickels, Georgie is like, you know, writing some of the lyrics. And yeah, for, for the back of Punchline, he actually does this little art with the clock in the spray. Trippy thing about, uh, I got to tell you about the chronology. Okay. You know, there's a third Missing Man, uh, Missing Man, Minuteman record called Joy. Yeah, I was going to ask. It came out right around this time. No, no. It actually comes out before the punchline. Now, the punchline's already recorded and mixed, but the, because of the uh, money situation, it can't be released yet. So, because, it, uh, you know, we're very influenced by Black Flag in all levels, touring, whatever, uh, you know, inventing the, the whole dealio for ourselves. But part of it's also having a label, and so this is why we start New Alliance Records. So this comes out on New Alliance. The first couple records we did were compilations and black flags on those, Sacred Trust, Minuteman. But because it was a you know more of our thing, we could actually get that out and we recorded that with Mike Patton, who was playing not the Mike Patton that everybody knows yeah. now, but the Mike Patton played bass for the middle class. He ended up producing the first adolescence out. Okay. Really nice guy, still around. I think he runs the buses for the Orange County, believe it or not. As, a, as an aside thing but that was just a thing because it was really tough for flag you know they were doing a lot of stuff and here they want to help us out and so we didn't want to be so pushy you know this thing will come out when it comes out so in the meantime we'll put out this joy ep and dezo who was playing guitar with them singing and playing guitar with them at the time actually wrote one of the songs with d boone on the other side well it seemed like you guys didn't have a shortage of material at the time either your hindsight were quite prolific oh uh, well we had to hurry you know georgie and then this thing, uh, they were little, the tunes. And I think uh, Search also came out on a compilation that Black Flag guys um, were working with uh, Rodney on the Rock with Posh Boy. You gotta understand, uh, we're, we're, uh, it was very Kano times. You know what I mean? The resources were very thin. But if you if you managed, to, you could get things happening. You know what I mean? That's what the whole idea of We Jammy Kano is. You make it uh, dream big enough for the tent. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to pretend like, whoa, we don't have enough, let's don't do it. No, let's do it, but the way it's, it's doable for us in our sitch. I was going to ask if you were around at all for any of the Descendants recording the Fat EP. They were in the studio around the same time. Well, we put out those records. We put out Fat EP and the first three Descendants out. Actually, the first Descendants single is only three-man. Milo ain't in the band. Right. He put that up himself, yeah. yeah. Rat Race, and uh, Ride the Wild or something. So those guys, they did it themselves. All the New Alliance stuff, usually it was they turned in finished tapes. That's the way we did with SST. Remember, we're uh, very inspired by those guys. We were this idea, hey, we want a New Alliance sound. In fact, I think D. Boone, the, the motto he came up with is we put out records no one else will. <laughs> Something like that. You know, we, we rarely had a, a, anything to do with them making their own thing because that's the way we made our record, Let the Freak Flag Fly. So that was all Billy, Milo, Frank, and Tony. There was no Milo with the band yet. And this was a good thing about John Doe last year when he wrote that book. He, he pieced it out to his friends, you know, because it's really kind of hard to know the whole thing. Yeah. You know? I really, though, hand it to Greg to let the bands have their own personas, though. No no, no SST branding sounds, you know? That's what we, most fans of the label, find so fascinating about it is yeah. it didn't try to conform the hardcore it, scene. Because, or... because that word punk, you know, you're always having to deal with punk. 
even in those days what is it you know is it usually it's a style of music and a way of dressing to me both those things are wrong i think it's more of a state of mind and the way you dress and the way you make your music that's your business there's no way to be part of the movement without adopting the uniform or you know or the sound which is what very fast guitar playing i mean and part of this like i say kind of prejudice because it come from 70s punk and you know bands like nervous gender or have you ever heard of no mercy Yep. Yeah, it's just drums and a singer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's whatever the fuck, you know? I don't want to misquote him, and I, I'm not even sure who said it, but I'm paraphrasing. It was either Chuck or Greg. I remember reading a quote one time that said something to the effect of, we never, you know, we never claimed to be a punk band. Yeah, maybe not. But I, I know they liked Ramones, and I know they liked Stooges. So, well, look, punk is a weird word anyway. It's about getting fucked in jail for cigarettes. So why would anybody call the music is? <laughs> it always tripped us out. So, yeah, the labels, the names, yeah, they they uh, they had problems. I think this was maybe later on when they were growing their hair no, and no, getting, they had getting a lot of shit. No, no, monolithic idea of what was expected. And, in fact, we were on a tour with them in the U.S. and uh, Europe. And where you know there was no open-mindedness, you know, and they're going, to, they're going, to, they only want long hair, you know, throw uh, batteries at you, spit on you, uh, use condoms. Well, it seemed like that got worse yeah. as, as it went yeah, on, it like as hardcore became a thing. Yeah. yeah, but not all of it, not all of it. Like anything, it's a fucking mixed bag. And actually, this tradition goes way back. Pat Boone sold many more tutti fruities than Little Richard. I mean, this <laughs> shit about co-opting things and making them lame. I mean, there's a good tradition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the way Minutemen have to deal with this now is when we look back, oh, you guys sounded so different. But see, that was the idea you were supposed to. <laughs> if you're, you weren't there, you don't understand, you know. And I guess there was this weird thing in the early 80s, you know. Is it going to be a social movement or is it going to be still uh, artistically experimental? Maybe that's still up in the air. But I do know you can buy punk clothes at the mall. <laughs> Yeah. Now, so if that's victory, you know, I don't know. I do think there's a lot of sense of the movement left because when we I play this music of these old songs I wrote, I don't play Georgie songs, I don't play D. Boone songs, I don't think it's right, but songs I wrote for these guys in those days, there is a weird trippy resonant that ain't happy days, you know, Fonzie Potsy shit. And I think some of it, yeah, it, it's, uh, I think the Minuteman was, here's one of the weird things that I can tell you from the inside. We really felt embarrassed by learning off the Creedence and Blue Oyster Cult records. You know, to us, that's why we're really in love with this band called Urinals. Huge influence on the Minutemen. These guys never played a note in their life, and all of a sudden they want to make a band, and they just do it. And they've got no no stain, no taint, you know? They, they're really, you know, how could we unwash? So a lot of those extreme things you're hearing the Minutemen do, even though they got the format idea from Wire, the idea of putting Beefheart and Funkadelic together from pump pop group. We're really trying to find our own voice. But you guys were, so, I think... We uh, want people to hear the Blue Oyster Cult part or the Creedence part. <laughs> but don't you think that that's how you guys got to be the quality of players that you were compared to your peers in the scene? I don't know. I'm just trying to put you inside our minds. Yeah. We felt a little embarrassed, you know? We kind of had learned some stuff. Because we're looking at this as ideology, I think, some ways, you know? Remember who split the world into two categories, gigs and flyers? I mean, what is the fuck? I mean, there are some practical music sides of that, but a lot of it's ideology, right? And it, and really, at the root of that is us trying to 
find her own voice. We wanted it, no matter what we played, you could tell it was the Minutemen. And if you're saying our earlier research, <laughs> study pro process, <laughs> copying, trying to copy songs off records, if that helped, so be it. You'll take it. <laughs> yeah, I'll take it. I'll take it. I'm not, you know, I think it would have been more phony for us to pretend we were idiots and fake like we didn't know how to play. That would have been terrible. Yeah. That would have been job. So we had, you know, we came to the, the, the gig with what we had. Now, let's say we're writing novels. You can write a novel that's pretty original and maybe even interesting without inventing one new word. That's the way we were looking at it. In fact, if you invent too many words, you know, it gets like Finnegan's Wake. It's a little tough to read. <laughs> so that's the way we looked at it and, and the way, what, what, like, we didn't feel like total dicks, you know. We, you know, like Popeye said, I am what I am. You come into this world, and Brant, you might be right. We did have a certain uh, set of skills that maybe the urinals didn't have. But on the other side, there was something, the urinals spoke to us. I think that was important. I'm not saying every band had to do that, but for us, in our situation, that was really important. You're still playing with a pick at this point. Yeah, I don't stop. I think the whole record, last whole record I do is um, Buzzer How. There's one song on Double Nickels, Shift from an Old Notepad. Was that a conscious decision you made to move off the pick? Uh, yeah, you lose picks. <laughs> Part of and, being uh, a Kano? <laughs> totally. Yeah. And, I, and I was being able to play fast enough. I couldn't play fast enough at first. And but and it's interesting, me doing these songs again with sec, Second Man and Missing Man. I really can't play with a pick anymore. So I have to hold my finger really stiff to make like a fake pick. Yeah. Yeah, Chuck, kind of like the Chuck Rainey thing he does. Yeah. The 16th notes in his nail. Yeah. Except ain't no Steely Dan record. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that there's in a perfect world, I would use both pick and fingers. Yeah. Yeah, it's all vocabulary. This macho thing about what which one's better than the others, that's ridiculous. It's all vocabulary. In fact, I saw John, Ent John Entwistle play once. The same song, this was in The Who, there's one of his corny bands, but he's incredible bass player. I saw him use fingers, slap, and pick in the same tune. Oh, yeah? Yeah, and it's like, fucking why not? You know, it's all vocabulary. Yeah, I like to use, you know, I'm influenced a lot by literature. And there's a lot of devices, you know, that's such a private form of expression. And it lends itself to some music stuff. How'd you guys decide who was going to sing what song? Was it a matter of who wrote the song? Yeah, I know that was strict rule in Hooskers. You wrote it, you sing it. That's yeah. what they told me. But with us, it had to be an easy enough bass line. <laughs> See, D. Boone, he would just stop playing if it was too hard. <laughs> or he'd do that chicken picking thing where he wouldn't be really fretting with the left hand. He'd just be muting. He's not really playing any notes. Hand for rhythm. Yeah. I did some of that too, but he did a lot. And so usually it was a, a pragmatic who could... Uh, now, now I'll tell you this. When it came to the lyrics, and, uh, you know, I wrote most of the Minutemen music and stuff, but when it came to lyrics, I, I couldn't really write them all. I'd start repeating myself. So I used a lot of D. Boone's George's... Now, D. Boone wrote lyrics that rhymed. There was no way I'm going to get those. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be a D. Boone song. Yeah. Now, if the the words are more, uh, you know, while he's driving the company van pool, you know, a little stream of consciousness, like uh, fuck advertising, the psychological meetings of, to sell should be destroyed, you know, this guy, then I'd get those kind of songs. <laughs> and, the you, and you wanted to sing? You were okay with it? Or? Uh, no, D. Boone ended up singing it, but I ended up writing the music. The singing was more of a practical thing. Who can handle it? Right. 
I'm talking more about the lyrics because I wrote a lot of songs. A lot of the Minutemen's songs I write, write don't have what lyrics. I only wrote about 45, only like 45 songs where I write both the words and the the, the, uh, the music, or maybe 50. But a lot of the songs I wrote, I'm using D Boone's, Georgie's. Fuck, one time I used a landlady. D Boone said my lyrics were a little spacey, so this one time I used a landlady's note about the fucking tub leaking. Yeah. Don't use shower. You know? Kind of reminds me of that Sonic Youth song, Providence. Same kind of idea, maybe? No, Pro- Providence, Thurston used a message machine. I never knew those were going to be used for a song. <laughs> no, no, that was that was like a unknown guest appearance coming up. <laughs> Two different phone calls. Because where they lived, uh, there was no doorbell. So there was a payphone there. And you can hear me. I'm on the punk phone, payphone, you know. So they put the keys in a sock and throw them down to you. Oh, yeah. Got up in their pad. Yeah, when they were on Elridge. And so there's another call because Thirst came and saw us the night before in Manhattan. He came to the gig with a bunch of shit he bought, you know, like cassettes and wires, patch cords. And at the end of the gig, they were all gone. And the next gig we have in Providence, Rhode Island, that's where I call up. And I tell him, it comes to me what happened, because there was trash in the van, and we'd smoked some mota, and I'd given him the trash, and I think when he went out to dump the trash, he dumped everything out in his arms. So that's what happened to the shit that he had bought. And so that's me, like, like telling him that. He mixed both phone calls together. He even did a video for it. Oh. Yeah, where all those, the spiels written on paper, you know, and there's that piano. <laughs> so that's a, a little different. Did but, they find the stuff? No. Well, he would have had to go back up to where that club, I can't even remember what club it was, yeah. and look at the trash cans around there. You know, this is the next day when I'm calling him. I'm pretty sure he didn't find it, ever find it. <laughs> and I don't know for sure if that's what happened, but it's a good guess. Okay? Yeah. Okay. But in a way, it was like that with this landlady because she didn't know her uh, spiel was being appropriated for music. Yeah, that's so kind of what I meant. Yeah. You're right, Grant. It is like Providence, but not on my side. I <laughs> <laughs> was totally unknown, but I, I did do that. Uh, I would I would use uh, other people's words, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Georgie's all the time. Georgie would never give him a, a title. That title was very important with me. I wouldn't even start a song without a title. I know titles for a lot of people are put on last. Not with me. They'd be first. But Dee Boone, he was very particular about words that he wanted to use, and they usually rot at the end of the lines rhymed. You still do that? Title the song first. Oh yeah, I ha- I have to. That's a what. Does that influence the direction the music's going to go? That's the reason I do it, Brad. I yeah. do it so I focus. My songs, you know, I, I was not a songwriter as a child. You know, in teenage, I wrote one song, Mr. Bass, King of Outer Space. It was about <laughs> doing some bass solo and blowing the rest of the guys off the stage. It was insane. It was retarded. So I, I didn't really know how to write songs until the movement, and then I thought the, the best way for me to get my fucking point across is give it some focus. So all the style, the tempo, the stops, the starts, these are all going to be device to help realize that tune, almost like a little movie. Yeah. So I want it to have a title. And so I still do that now. Uh, Georgie, at this time, uh, punchline time, Georgie's working a job where he's working on a lathe in a machine shop really early in the morning. I mean, yeah. I think the shift yeah. starts at 5 a.m. So he's doing these lyrics kind of in a surreal state, you know? They're kind of blurry and trippy. They're a byproduct of his, his a sitch. Things like ruins and monuments, boiling, search, you know, uh, George Hurley, uh, and, and, but Dee Boone too. Dee Boone really kind of uh, knew how to uh, be right. Georgie's surreal, Dee Boone uh, more uh, literal, 
Watt was always chasing both those guys that way. I, I, I didn't have it as natural as those guys. That's the way I feel it. I'd say well, you kept I, up. Well, it's good to have guys like that. You know, Minutemen is a pretty band. We're all three firstborns. So nobody's playing the little brother role. <laughs> you know, there really was no hierarchy <laughs> in a lot of ways, you know. It was, and everybody was trying to punch above the weight, you know. We, we, we were really enamored with this movement, man. We really wanted to be part of it. I, I, I can't explain how important that was. Uh, but we thought part of that toll or whatever you want to tithe, whatever you want to call it, was coming up with your own trip, somehow finding your own voice. And so we wanted people to know it was Minutemen. Not better, you know, hopefully not worse, but you could tell it was us. Well, you definitely well, achieved definitely. that. Well, you, you're most kind. Hey, I wanted to ask you, since we're going through releases on the label, yeah. are there any hidden gems you can think of that we should look out for? Like, for example, I know you produced The Treacherous Jaywalkers. Which is Charlie Hayden's son, Josh Hayden. Yeah, I also did the first, uh, helped with the first Sacred Trust. Okay, it's called pa Pagan Icons, or Pagnicons. <laughs> and also another Sacred Trust one I helped with was We Became Snakes. And then I actually play on a Sacred Trust record because the bass player haired out at the last minute. It was an impro impro improvised album called World Broken. You played on the whole thing? I, well, I'm the bass player. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't play everything. <laughs> and it was live, and see, later on they went and edited it. Well, they cut out the stuff. Sort of like Miles Smiles around the corner, that kind of stuff. Where you take the interesting parts. And splice it. Yeah, that's what they did. Yeah. And uh, in fact, it's the only time I ever wore a tuxedo. They had me wear a tuxedo at this thing. Yeah. There's a, the one we did with Black Flag called Minute Flag. Yeah. That's a trippy one. I think it's four or five songs. While they were doing Loose Nut and uh, In My Head, uh, we came in the studio and in a couple hours did those five songs with them. Or four or five songs, I can't remember. Joe Beiser did the uh, record cover. Uh, there's an interesting uh, record that me and Georgie play on with Elliot Sharp. It's called The Bootstrappers. Yeah, I have it. And, uh, I'm playing a weird little bass that has rub rubber band strings. <laughs> You had to play it with fucking talcum powder because your fingers would stick to these rubber bands. It was an Ashberry. It was a Guild Ashberry. And, uh, that was a neat experience. Me and George, we only got, got to, we did three gigs and did that record with him. And But it was a, a trippy thing for me and George. Three or four gigs. Uh, so that's what I'm thinking of. I remember the artwork. Uh, there's an insert on Punchline. And it's got this these fundamental of art. This guy, a friend of ours, Marty Lyon, took pictures of us. We practiced with Black Flag in this uh, dentist office in the Old Town Torrance. And Marty took some pictures. And I, I think he was taking notes from some like lecture at college. <laughs> we put this in the insert. And I always thought what, what, what people thought of that. What, and it's got a picture of me, D. Boone, Georgie each. And then these little paragraphs of like, Fundamentals of artistic design, or some shit, you know, from a lecture. And, you know, it's bizarre because I think, in a weird way, uh, Minutemen considered themselves like part, part, part of the punk take on art rock. You know, something like Red Crayola or Captain Beefheart, or you know, you know what I mean. Yep. But still, like Stooges, <laughs> <laughs> which was to us pretty artistic too. Funhouse, I mean, Jesus, incredible. It sounds like it's recorded next week, uh, even now. I remember one time Joey uh, Ramon was talking to me backstage at some gig, corny gig, but he said to me, you know, the movements, it's kind of like a big hay wagon. If you got something to bring, come on. And I just thought that was so beautiful of him, you know? And it, and it was like the noble part, you know? And I think 
there was always that in our mind, Minuteman being part of SoCal, SST, the movement in general, just us three guys being from Pedro. We just, there was something about that. And also when we met another band, like, for example, Joey and God, who was the bass band? Randy, right? Yeah. Later on was Wimpy. Yeah. Heard he passed away. Yeah, he passed away. I first met him when he was the singer of the Subhuman. There was a Canadian Subhuman. Yeah, they had an album on SST also. And you know what? I think Spot did it. Yeah, I bet he did. (laughs) He did a lot of them. (laughs) Yeah, I think one of their guys went to jail for protesting at a nuke place. Yeah, he blew up an oil pipeline. Is that what happened? Something like that, yeah. It was the bass man. But anyway, when you would meet guys, you know, other bands, it was just so great to... To know because a lot of the stuff, their art, their records, their, it was very interesting. Then you meet these cats, and you could tell why they were involved. Like you were saying, one off, the BBC Six guy, uh, Mark Riley, he called Todd Tad Fal- Falco one off. And I, I thought that was such a great name because actually we're all one offs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we all got a lot in common, you know, don't get me wrong, but we got, in a lot of ways, just look at your thumbprint, we're kind of a one off. <laughs> but thank you for talking to me about this stuff. Anything you want to know? When you get to, uh, I don't know, Double Nickels or... Uh, I'd love to talk to you about Firehose at some point. Firehose is down the road. Actually, there's three-way tie, and then there's ballot result, then there's Firehose. Firehose is kind of my... That's my thing. Well, yeah, by that time, the movement was much bigger. Hardly any people saw the Minutemen. Yeah. Because it hadn't got to the... REM kind of brought the movement to the college radio. Believe it or not, man, when I used to call the stations for SST, you know, in these days, punchline days... Well, they, mostly they were playing Journey and shit because they were looking for jobs with the labels. It wasn't the thing like, wow, I got my own show and I'm going to play what I want. That was a couple years down the road. REM helped with that. By this, this time, it was still underground uh, in England and Canada. I mean, uh, U.S. and Canada. In England, fuck, uh, the Clash was on CBS. Uh, the Jam was, uh, I don't know. Uh, but they were rock bands, more or yeah, less. Yeah, yeah. But they were also on huge labels too. Yeah. What's the one with the P? With the P? But I think UA was uh, Stranglers and all those guys. Polygram. Yeah. Yeah. EMI. Even Wire was on EMI, right? The Pink Floyd label. You could cut those guys some slack though, because they they still made some trippy records. But the other guys, only their first records, good. <laughs> it's just like like you say, rock bands. But same with kind of the New York, the early New York scene too, you know. Yeah, but also England had still some good stuff like the Fall, Alternative Television, uh, Pop Group, Sex Pistols. Uh, well, they, they only lasted one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, a lot of those bands, even the first Jam record, I can listen to that. I like, but man, not not the stuff after. <laughs> some of the pub rock stuff. And then some of the uh, well, there there still was independent labels like United Dairies, that Lemon Kitten shit. I mean, there was some crazy shit. It didn't all go to the big labels. Yeah, you know, even the first Squiddy Polity records are pretty trippy. You know, life's a trip, and then you get there, right? Yeah. If I can help you, I'll, I'll help you with the fire hose too. When you yeah, get to I'd that. love to do that. Okay, mm. but you know, I got I got a tour in September, October. So wait for November, okay? Okay, I'll wait. <laughs> it's gonna take us that long, probably, to get to fire hose, anyways. So yeah, yeah. What is that one? Thirty one or raging full on seventy nine. So we got a ways to go. Seventy nine. Yeah. Wow, it's way down the road. Okay. Yeah, no ways to go. That's nineteen eighty seven. Yeah. No, 86, 86, 87 is Iffin. 88, 88 is Iffin. 89 uh, from Ohio. 91, Flying the Flannel. Uh, 92, Totem Pole. Live Totem Pole. Tw- uh, 93, Mr. Machinery Operator. Yeah, Firehose did six records and uh, 20 tours in seven and a half years. Wow, eh? Uh, and pretty incredible. Edward, and man, that was a hard time for me. Edward, Georgie, too. They really helped me out. So, 
Thanks again for letting people know about this stuff, Brad. Uh, Thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Okay, man. Thanks a lot, yeah. Mike. Anytime, anytime, Brad. You take Stay care. Safe. Bye. All right, well, there you have it. That is the interview with Mike Watt, and I've heard a lot of interviews from Mike Watt, and it always strikes me how enthusiastic he is and how nice he is, too. I mean... Man, he was so you know, accommodating. Like, it was, it was really awesome. Yeah, I mean, they say, you know... Maybe not. I don't know what the saying is. Don't meet your heroes, but you know, be careful about meeting your heroes because you can really get let down. I met Mike Watt once in like a club, and it wasn't like nearly the amount of time, and it was just a really quick moment. But I mean, Mike Watt. Mike Watt doesn't let you down, right? He yeah. does not let you down. Yeah, I've met him in person too, and you know, I didn't have a lot to say to him. I never do when I meet you know heroes. I just like to say hi. But he was really nice. You know, I had some yeah. records or a record, and he signed it. A dose record. Oh, a dose record. That's cool. That and you know that reminds me too. I mean, you guys talked about some of the more obscure releases that we'll get to eventually, like Minute Flag and Bootstrappers. Or I think Bootstrappers is a new Alliance release. I can't remember. I think it is. Yeah, we maybe uh, we'll have a chance to have a chance to talk about that. Uh, talking about a Saccharine Trust record that he played on. I did not know that. That I'll have to look out for. It's very cool when we get to it. But yeah. That's a great opportunity to talk with Watt, and great that he offered to uh, connect with the podcast again in the future, right? I can't wait to get into Firehose. Oh, yeah. I'm a way bigger Firehose fan myself, personally, than a Minutemen fan. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty even, I would say, but there's some Firehose that I definitely like that really, really strikes a chord with me, and still to this day, uh, some of their stuff is just incredible and it's not well known so um it'd be great if we could maybe change that a bit well, let's um turn over to the ballot result ballot result go ahead what's your what's your pick i get to pick okay it's got to be search that's the one i had yeah it's got to be search it's one of the best 51 seconds put to wax the bass tone's <laughs> killer on the whole album yeah agreed yeah but every song on there there's like I think there's only one song over over a minute tension, but search is perfect at 51 seconds. That's the next selection on the ballot result. Does he mention the Stranglers in the interview? No. I thought he did. He talks, no, he talks about a lot of uh, UK bands like Screedy Politty and Pop Pop Group. He always he mentions Pop Group and Wire a lot in uh, his interviews, but he mentioned a lot of other stuff this time. I don't remember Stranglers. Maybe he did. I didn't catch it though. I'm just thinking about the bass tone. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're saying. Yeah. I'll tell you, though, I love that uh, offender with a pick. I love it. Yeah. Okay, well, I want to thank everybody for tuning in, and I really want to thank, again, Mike Watt for taking the time to do that. It really meant a lot. I really appreciate it. Yeah, me too. So next episode is Black Flag Six Pack. See you then. Thanks for listening. <laughs>